Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Whether we've been creating elementary stone tools, traveling into space or developing our own artificial intelligence. Since the beginning of time, humans have been fascinated by how our world works. Design thinking has exploded into the 21st century workplace. It's a methodology designed to put humans at the heart of everything we do. This series explores where it came from and where it's going. From methodology to a philosophy for life, design thinking is changing the world. That's Richard Adams and I'm Sam Fry. Last time we learned about design education and what is taught in design schools. Today we are going to hear stories from the students. We're going to learn how they approach design in their practices, from the worlds of architecture, fashion, film and sculpture. Act 1. Design Practice. First, let's meet Stiliana Minkowska. Uh, my name is Tiliana Minkowska and I'm a qualified architect, but I guess my practice is very much transdisciplinary because ever since I qualified as an architect in 2018, I'm not very happy with this title because it's kind of constraining. So um, I am very multidisciplinary. I enjoy doing product design, user experience, as well as spatial and concept design. So in a way, I'm very much... Not the typical architect, but I prefer the designer title, to be honest. Stiliana's work is heavily influenced by her life experience. I guess in 2016, uh, I was doing my final year in Master's in Architecture at the Royal College of Art. And prior to joining this year, because the Master's runs for two years, I, I found out that I was pregnant. So I went into my final year with a heavy pregnancy. I went to school. I turned up in September 20. 15 with a massive bum and everybody thought that was heavy holiday weight but it was actually a living heartbeat inside of me and ever since then my my practice completely changed and ever since then I just became fascinated with with the healthcare environments and more specifically the maternity wards and how women give birth which is one of the most profound experiences in a lot of people's lives yet is very often dehumanizing and disempowering in the backdrop of the hospital. So since 2015 until today, what I continue to do is critically engage with maternity wards and trying to change the system within which women have to reproduce and trying to make it more mother-centric and give it empowerment through, through, the, through the power of design. Stiliana explains her journey from giving birth to designing birthing spaces. The way my birth went about was I had a supermodel pregnancy. I didn't feel morning sickness. I found out I was pregnant early third month. And um, it was, I just cycled until the very end, until my bicycle, until the steering couldn't. <laughs> my bump was just on the way. Uh, so it was very healthy and very straightforward. But then my due date was the 20th of December. And I thought, this is when I'll give birth, because on 17 was my final review. It went really well. And then it was just a waiting game. And on 31st of December, I was admitted for induction at St. Thomas's, where my daughter was born. Because it was also Christmas and this festive period when people are just all happy. You're just thinking, OK, something's wrong with me. Why Why is this baby not coming out? Why, why, is, she, why is she staying inside? Why is she 
enjoying my habitat so much. And also the social pressure, just people obviously unconsciously triggering anxiety within me because everybody was asking me, oh, what's happening? Did you give birth? Where is the baby? Why are you holding it? What's going on? You feel like a faulty person. You feel like something's wrong with you. When I was admitted for induction, which was a self-admission in a way, I called the hospital. I was just like, I have to come in. They tried to induce me, but then the baby didn't like it. Her heart rate was accelerating. She was going to explode because she didn't like the medicine. So they had to remove this artificial oxytocin, which was like a, a drip that they inserted uh, inside of me. After that, she came in her own terms three days later. Um, but because they tried to induce me, my birth was kind of bed bound. So I was laying on my back in this historically thotomy position, uh, which works against the gravity or it just works against the natural forces. So it's, it's much more likely medical interventions to happen and the birth to be more complicated. Even though somehow miraculously my, my daughter was born without any medical intervention, just straightforward vaginal birth. Uh, she was enormous. She was nearly 10 pounds because of the overcooking. She was four kilograms, 265 grams, which is, which is pretty big. Normal babies are born three, three kilos. This was just above uh, all standards. And this moment really inspired me, kind of changed the system. I was just like, this is wrong, how women are controlled to go uh, against their bodily instincts and, and their agency somehow feels very much controlled. So when I went back to school, I, I told my tutors, I filmed the bird from four different camera angles. And this was my piece for, for one of the for one of the exhibitions for the work in progress show, which was seen by many people. And it was really incredible piece of work. It wasn't in any way graphical. I didn't want to trigger anxiety within other people and because it's obviously it could be a very sensitive topic. But it was more about this uh, the conversation between the whole to environment and how I felt as a medical object, really, how I was just told how, what to do, how to push, what not to do. There wasn't really elements of offerings which assisted uh, what I needed. And then I went on to design, to redesign spatially the birth environment. Stiliana's story is a fascinating one. It shows how she draws from her own experiences, questions her environment and uses design to provoke new ideas. And that seems to be the very essence of putting the human at the heart of the process. In the next act, we will learn more about what she designed as an alternative to this experience, and we'll learn more about her own design process. Act 2. Materials and Physical Design We've heard how Stiliana observed problems and how people are treated in the birthing process and how that led to her designing alternatives. So what were the alternatives? My mother and my partner were with me and constant flow of hospital stuff. I used to cover myself with a sheet and just escape and kind of the, the environment that I could imagine was just space, like a cosmic flight. And this was giving me comfort and then I, I and then I thought, why why can we not have an environment for bird giving, which is like a planetarium, so women can merge with something really vast and powerful, yet quite intimate during this intimate moment of of, of giving birth. 
And then I designed a planetarium-like bird center, which is kind of separate from the hospital. We had in a close proximity should emergency help be needed. And with this project, I applied to a residency with the Design Museum in 2019, when their topic happened to be cosmic. And then during the residency, I just thought I would be creating this one-to-one pot where women can immerse themselves, have this um, uh, projection and this stellar uh, birth experience somehow. But then during the research, I just visited the hospital, which was nearby, because the Design Museum is uh, located in South Kensington. So I visited Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which recently underwent refurbishment. And it was fascinating to see how in... 2019, when birth has all these different landscapes and means of just giving birth, you can just have all these different positions. You can do hypnobirth, water birth. All the supporting elements were just so dated. They hadn't changed since the 60s. So I thought this is this is wrong. I should actually focus where help is needed. So I, after extensive research, I went on to uh, redesign, to design some birthing furniture. And I kind of separated it in the main stages of of childbirth. So that's how my project Ultima Thule came to life. And the first piece of furniture is called the labor seal, which is when women go into this labor phase, which is to me the most alien, surreal, otherworldly out-of-body experience where you, you just feel out of control. It's something that it's happening to you. You have no con- control over it. It's just like a, a foreign possession over your body. So I wanted to design it as a playground so women can actually interact with it and feel supported in a very ergonomic and manner. And obviously not all women um, go through this labor stage. Some women go straight for, <laughs> they just somehow skip this this phase. Some women go straight into for, for an operation or they just get, give birth quite quickly. Um, the second piece I call the perturition stool, which is to give birth vaginally supported by a partner. So in a way, it's like a shared, shared flight. And... In a way, it was designed as a as a manifesto against this historical lithotomy position because um, women are being bed bound. It's kind of dehumanizing, and it takes away from your power to 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 reproduce. Really, to to have this instinct, which is to give birth to a new life. The final piece was the solace chase, which I wanted to make inclusive to celebrate womanhood because women are not defined by having children. I think there are women who choose to have an abortion or miscarriage, people who struggle to conceive or um, people that are surrogate or give their children for adoption. So through the final piece, I kind of wanted to to celebrate uh, just the, the reproductive choice over over women's economy. And um, after the residency finished last year, in June 2020, I donated the pieces to the hospital where my daughter was born. And it was kind of a nice conclusion in a cyclical way. And because I was thinking I need to do something else, I, I want to be within this field. This is when I started. I went to do this course, which is part time in healthcare and design with the Royal College of Art and Imperial College, which has been so far fascinating and eye-opening experience. Stiliana's story involves observation, research, exploration, and perhaps provocation. 
I asked Steliana whether she saw these designs as real solutions or as speculative design. This is an amazing question because I, I've never been asked this before. And actually, to me, they were they were very speculative. The way they emerged was just my my representation of things that should actually change. And of course, I conducted series of interviews and and uh, questioned a lot of women when with who have undergone through. Uh, all sorts of reproductive means, whether it's miscarriage or abortion or cesarean birth, vaginal birth, medical intervention and so on. The way they emerged was just how I, I really, I was my persona. And I, just to answer the question in a straightforward way, I would say that they are, they were born as a very speculative series of objects. Objects, but then when they were presenting to the audience, even even until recently, I went to visit the maternity wards at St Mary's and Queen Charlotte's and Chelsea's hospitals. People were like, "We need these. Can you? Why did you donate them to St Thomas's? Why didn't you reach out to us?" People see them as actually, "Oh my God, this should this should be real." And in a way, I see them this way as well. But they were they were produced as as prototypes. I think there is a lot of technology and a lot more work required in them to be to be fully functional. Stiliana's design approach starts with her using her own experience and with a provocation of what that could be. She would now like to make these ready for actual use. My ideal scenario is to be is to find a venture or an investment that I can just work with with a team of design engineering managers and uh, textile designers and people who have expertise in ergonomics as well as healthcare professionals such as midwives, obstetrics and, and so on and just make them make them complete in a way. The students at the Royal College of Art do practice different structured approaches to creation of work, partly based on the discipline that they study, but also depending on whether they are more focused on art or design. Alex is an artist studying at the RCA. So my name is Alexandra Stanek, but usually people just call me Alex because it's a lot easier. And I am a filmmaker slash writer. I've also had the kind of privilege, I guess, of being the co-president of the Students' Union of the Royal College of Art. So I still talk to a lot of different creatives and, and designers apart from having my own practice. Alex originally studied sculpture before deciding to focus on film. I started off in the sculpture slash lens-based division in on BA level. That's kind of taken me down some interesting routes. Uh, for a very long time I thought that what I want to make is monumental sculpture and you know, I followed that. I did a year abroad in a very traditional art academy in Zagreb in Croatia, where I had the opportunity to learn a lot of very traditional sculpting techniques. But then after some time, and it was actually during my master's at the Royal College of Art, I basically realized that I'm much more interested in narrative than I am interested in materiality. And from there, I think my practice has changed a lot because now I work primarily in film and writing. And, you know, I think it's always quite persistent that there is an element of problem solving and figuring things out. And so on some level, those different media aren't that different because you will always have challenges around 
well, actually just designing and, you know, to some extent engineering the piece. For example, you know, maths is really not my strong suit, but when you're making large sculpture, any sculpture really, there are elements of thinking mathematically, scaling up ratio. And so actually in film work, there's a lot of that, but this time it's around frame rates um, and shutter speeds and all and the distance of, you know, the subject that you're filming. We asked Alex about an example sculpture piece that she made. For me, very often it starts off with a certain image in my head. And then I have this very fun, but also very excruciating process of trying to get something very abstract and, you know, rationalize it or materialize it. So I think at that point, what I did is, you know, I followed up with sketches and then I had to figure out the whole actual building process. So luckily I had the experience of doing that one year in Zagreb in a very traditional academy where, you know, they, they showed me how to do these things. Uh, so I started off with a model and the model at the very least, you know, you, you usually do that one, one to five scale. So at the very least, even if you're not exactly 100% sure yet how you're going to get everything together, how it's going to be structurally sound, at the very least you have your measurements and you can kind of work from there. Uh, so the model was in plaster, um, but then I had to work up to the actual work being made with a kind of metal welded skeleton where I actually... I did some welding myself, but I also worked with some professional welding guys who were very good, you know. And then that ended up having a kind of overlay of very malleable aero plywood, which, you know, when I look back, I really kind of wish that I've actually, that I'd used a more natural material, maybe like hay. But, you know, you always have those moments of looking back and thinking that you would have done something differently. And in the end, the piece was in three parts, uh, which all came together with just screws, very heavy duty screws in the right kind of moments. And the overlay had these moments of disguised places where if you lifted off one of the boards, that's where again it would join. So it was a bit of this jigsaw puzzle in three pieces. And that was necessary because there was no other way that you could, you know, bring it about from the elevator to the stairs. So, you know, I think that working with limitations is very good because it gives you some kind of a self-discipline and it's far more interesting for problem solving, frankly. You know, you wouldn't have any problem solving if you didn't have limitations. Tassie Ellen Thompson trained as a sculpturer. She believes this relationship between design, space and play is really important. I think there is a real appreciation for artists is that the material that they use, or even the context they use, especially like for myself who's a site-specific artist, is that's part of the conversation. The more-than-human element. What's really interesting, I think, is I think artists, especially maybe artists who do work alone, are very conscious of the relationship they have with material, with the paint or with the stone or with the metal. For me, it's outdoors. You know, we're trained in that. We That's what we intuitively have a conversation with this material factor. And perhaps with design thinking, it allows a space where people have chance to come in and work with other humans. But what I would think is, you know, the real development is when you start to work with other materials beyond the post-it note and the pen. <laughs> I think you have to get a little bit beyond that. So very often in, you know, really 
productive design thinking workshops or processes that I've seen worked well, it becomes much more playful and other materials are introduced, other contexts are introduced. I work a lot with play. You know, I've been a play space designer for some 20 years now. And I think that the, the connection between playfulness and innovation is actually at the core. So the idea of design thinking is really, <laughs> it's play at work. But to really embark on innovative thinking, you have to go right back to the source and that's play for me. We've heard from a couple of designers today about what their design process looks like. It involves observation, research, problem finding, playfulness, a vision, and maybe some provocation. That's their design process. It's a very hands-on approach and in no small measure influenced still by the approach that the Bauhaus took 100 years ago. It's about working with materials and spaces in an exploratory way. It's about the intangible, experimental, feeling ways of working, not just intellectual thinking. So why the emphasis on design thinking? Act three, thinking. When you are a designer, talk to question. You don't always take things at face value. Tassie Ellen Thompson explains the questions that came to her when she first heard the term design thinking. And first off, when I'm looking at the term design thinking, I question, what's with this thinking thing? You know, so Ken Robinson, who's a a fabulous and much missed educator, said, you know, we're not brains on legs, brains on sticks, you know, we don't walk around. It's It's not just thinking. For me, when I'm teaching, I teach design doing, design feeling, design touching, design hearing, design smelling, design tasting. So for me, it's a real embodied whole body endeavor that thinking is a cognitive part of that, but it's certainly not simply what we think of as, you know, design thinking. It has such strong connotations. I much prefer to include in in the creative processes that I ask my students to embark on, you know, and encourage them to to engage with, are multisensory. And we kind of avoid this idea of thinking because it has such a heavy idea of, of, you know, a finished answer. I much prefer the idea of design wondering, you know, and design curiosity. Dr. Yankee Lee agrees. I don't think you would just think because thing like, like the other talking about is a very linear process. We just think. But actually, we do a lot of crazy thing. We go out and touch, we go and smell, we experience it. Uh, we need to go and really feel it and then immerse in it. So I think that's the problem about using the word thinking only um, because I think that is just a very linear way of describe it. I would say we, we believe in this of like, constantly questioning ourselves, very highly reflective. We ask a lot of questions and also we don't compromise. I think that is very important. So we, we're constantly looking for the perfect 
answer, but never have a real solution because it's just keep going doing it. A lot of designer is not about making a solution. So I would say making a statement or making a expression or making a connection, even a participation, but not a solution because solution is the end. But for us, this is something is to be an ongoing process, questioning, rethinking, rethinking, and rethinking. So if you say design rethinking, maybe better, <laughs> because it's just having got this feeling of constantly asking questions and constantly questioning about our world. Here is Lisa Ayama. The way that I think pr- practitioners interpret the word think, and I guess someone that doesn't have maybe like a hands-on practice with interpret the way you think are um, maybe slightly different. In my dissertation, I also referenced um, an anthropologist. Basically, he, he talks about this idea of like thinking through making as opposed to making through thinking. And it's basically the idea that you sort of grow with the material as you sort of interact with it. And the sort of particular skill of a practitioner is to be able to work with this sort of really time-consuming, laborious, really slow process of working with a material, um, but then to, to balance that with this really sort of vision that really shoots ahead and you almost kind of lose sight of it as it sort of reaches into the horizon kind of thing. Diana Kanheiser summarises this in a very nice way. When talking about thinking, I don't, again, want to take them apart because design is about thinking, And thinking is about design in a way, if you think about it. So, the emphasis should not be solely on thinking. Making, feeling, tasting, smelling and hearing. These are equally important. So why is thinking emphasised? Amanda Foreman, a designer at The Zone, believes that creating the space for people to question and think deeply is helpful in itself. I remember when I was younger, I competed in um, speech and debate when I was in high school. And my dad always used to say, you know, when you're formulating your arguments and you're thinking about what you want to say in response to certain things, he's like, it's really helpful if you just sit down and just like spend some time just thinking about it. Just like sit and think. And because he was always like, people don't think about things in the world. Thinking is tough it is and especially like paradigms are tough like we're yeah we're trained to like think think a certain way and I think it takes time like we as human beings take time to change we take time to adjust to things and so I think if we're but we're if we're in environments where we're we're challenging people or we're creating safe environments for people to sort of be like oh I don't know what I I don't know if I like that or I don't know what I think about that and to really like take time to process through it's taking people on that journey of change really to help them adjust the way that they're thinking. Today we heard the stories from designers and artists like Stiliana Minkowska and Alex Stanek on how they've approached projects. They told us how they draw from their experiences, ask questions and experiment and play with their materials and within their environment. But we also learned that designers use their experiences to speculate on what could be. They use design to provoke the status quo. We also learned that thinking is a problematic term. Thinking might actually overemphasize solutioning rather than allowing you to immerse yourself in the problem in an embodied way. Perhaps design questioning 
or rethinking would be better terms. Over the last couple of podcasts, we've heard more about design education, what designers are taught at design schools and what they do in practice. So with businesses and other organisations embracing design thinking, how is that changing design education? We'll look at that next time. This episode was written, recorded and produced by Sam Fry and Richard Adams. Thank you to Alex Stanek, Amanda Foreman, Diana Kanheiser, Hal Wirtz, Jessica Tremblay, Joseph Picall, Lisa A. Armour, Robert Hookman, Stiliana Minkowska, Tassie Ellen Thompson and Dr. Yankee Lee for being interviewed. All music from this podcast is available on a Creative Commons licence downloaded at freemusicarchive.org. Artists used include Alex Productions, Circus Marcus, Crowanda and Yazar. Don't miss an episode of this series by subscribing to this podcast feed. Also, go on, give us a rating, help us in the charts. And you can find out more at technique.create-hub.co.uk. Next time on Technique Explores Design Thinking. I think from that sense, it's, it's a little bit of a recognition that maybe not every methodology is applicable in every circumstance. So they design a workshop. And my question is like, that is a social work at work. They may be doing better than you. So what is your design skill there? We find out whether design thinking is changing design education itself. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. 